Hey everyone, this week I sit down with someone who inspired me to become a social worker, my aunt. She is a social worker in Vermont. She's been a career social worker. She started out straight out of college as a child protective investigator. Then she became a supervisor and then a manager. So now she works mainly in policy, but she has all the experience of being the social worker on the ground, managing those social workers, and then being in administration and focusing mostly on policy, which is interesting because you would think this is the place where we get stuff done, right? When a really bad situation happens or when workers are not being cared for in the way that they should, that she's the one that makes the policy and helps enforce it and make sure that it's even something that they can implement. So she kind of goes through what policy is like in the Department of Children and Families. And she actually gives us a pretty bright perspective on this because I thought it was going to be bureaucracy and not being able to make the change that she wants to make. But actually, she tells us about how they are implementing kind of progressive models, how they check in with other states across the nation to see what they're doing and what's new and innovative in the child protection world and kind of the intricacies of being able to make policy and make them effective. I had a bunch of questions for her. You're going to notice that I keep trying to starting to end the interview and then asking her another question. So that happens like three or four times because I was just so interested in how it all works. One quick disclaimer before we get started, she is speaking to me simply as a person, as my aunt, uh, and she is not speaking as a representative of the Department of Children and Families in Vermont. Also, this was recorded remotely, so there are a few blips in the audio. Uh, Vermont's rural, so internet's not always the best, and our connection was a little slow, but it, it doesn't impede the interview very much. All right, you guys are going to love this. Let's go. Hi, I'm Rebecca Britt, and this is the Stable Moments Podcast the show where we discuss all things related to the foster care system and early childhood trauma. From foster parents, trauma experts, former foster kids, and beyond, we'll take a deep dive into the complexities of the foster care crisis in an effort to better understand how to fix it. Okay, thank you so much for coming on. I can't believe we haven't done this before, considering we're both in the same field and both in the same family. But I want to just start by here, excuse me, I want to just start by asking you what your role is today and how you got to that role. Okay, sure. So um, my title is Child Safety Manager. Um, I work for the State uh, Child Protection Agency in Vermont. And um, I've been in this position for, I think, about three years now. I got here by way of being a um, social worker with the Department for Children and Families. I started back in 2006. Um, I, most of my experience uh, has been in conducting child abuse investigations and assessments. Um, I think I did that for about seven years and then I became a supervisor and I supervised that work for a few years. And from my supervisor position, um, I applied for this role and this is where I am. So what does the manager do? That's a great question. Um, so really around ensuring that our policies and our practices in the realm of child safety are up to snuff, you know, that they're 
evidence-based, that they are in line with what the rest of the nation is doing um, in terms of best practices, and that um, we're doing our best to keep children safe, and also that our workers are um, have the training and tools they need to do that job. So when you moved from a direct service worker to a supervisor, is that does that take all the direct service out of it? Technically, yes. Um, as a supervisor, I um, signed a couple of cases to myself in the beginning, um, thinking I was, you know, going to help out my workers by taking some of the load off. But what I found pretty quickly was that I didn't have the time um, to really to do the to do both worlds. And so the cases that I had assigned to myself sort of lingered, and it just it wasn't a good idea. So technically, no, that's not supposed to happen. And do they typically hire out of, you know, internally, or do they ever say like, we'll take a manager that has, or a supervisor that has experience in social work, but maybe has never been a child protection investigator? Yeah, I mean, I think it happens sometimes. It's a, it's a pretty steep learning curve. Um, there's, there's an old saying that it takes you at least two years to really know what the heck you're doing in child protection. And so, you know, there's a, it's, it's a policy rich profession. Um, and it, it does happen. It has happened, but I think it's much more common for somebody to, to work in the field first and then become a supervisor. So how well do you feel like the system works as far as promoting uh, reunification and permanency how well do you feel like the system's doing? I think we are always trying. I think that, um, you know, when I first when I first entered this profession, I, I read some books that depicted the pendulum swing. And I'm not sure how much you've heard about the pendulum swing, but it, it happens. I think it happens in every state. Um, you know, what happens usually is that the work is very focused on reunification and per, um, permanency within the family unit. Um, and inevitably, a child gets hurt because we can't prevent all serious injuries or fatalities. And then the, there's a public outcry. And then you'll see laws and policies change in response. And then we start to sort of the pendulum swings back towards, you know, child safety at all costs and um, maybe moves away a little bit from, from the reunification piece. What I will say though, um, is that in the time of my career, we've adopted some tools that were developed um, out in California through the Children's Research Center. And they're tools that are used in, in a lot of states. And um, those tools, I think, do a great job of balancing both you know, family engagement with child safety. Um, and they are a structured way to do the work that sort of takes it out of the realm of the social worker's subjective opinion. Because I think when you're talking about family engagement versus child safety or some amalgamation thereof, when that is, when that's approached subjectively, it can look very different. Um, and I'm not saying that the tools take the subjectivity away completely. There's no way to do that, but I think they reduce it greatly. So how well, I think we're doing better now that we have some research-based tools to use. So I want to ask you this before we get into more of the policy piece. On this podcast, we've had several foster, former foster youth 
and we hear over and over again that they feel like they weren't given any choices, like their voice wasn't heard in the process. And I know that we've also heard that it's so important to hear from the foster parents or it's important to hear from, you know, all parties involved. How do you feel like the system gives the children a voice? And I know this is really difficult because most children are going to say they just want to be back with their biological parents, right? And then there's going to be a guardian ad litem that's going to have their best interest in mind. But I, these kids were like, I don't, I don't care if I have to be on meds. I just kind of like to know what the meds are doing. And like, it's this one or this one, like they just felt like they were stripped of any choices. Um, so I didn't know if you had any perspective on that of how department of children and families either, um, works to include the child's voice or if there's any, you know, real emphasis on that. We've been working to improve that in Vermont, I think that we probably still have a little bit of a ways to go. Um, in the last handful of years, I don't remember exactly when, but we instituted um, a normalcy policy um, that is really focused on trying to normalize the, um, the youth in state care as much as possible. So in terms of like, you know, wanting to go on ATV rides with their friends over the weekend or wanting to get a body piercing or, you know, getting their driver's license and whether or not they're allowed to take the car, like all of those things, um, you know, just really working hard to ensure that the fact that they're in state care doesn't impact uh, those decisions um, that are made about their lives. You know, the medication piece is a really tough one. I, I might push back a little bit and say, I'm not sure how much of a voice most kids get, whether they're in state care or not. I mean, you know, we're at, we live in a culture that's sort of, you know, we follow the doctor's orders, right? Um, so I would hope that any youth um, gets a voice and that all families, whether they're foster families or birth families, um, really push back a little bit and investigate medications. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I should say one more thing about the medication piece. We, also, we do have a policy. There are, um, I can't even name them off the top of my head, but there are some medications um, and some combinations of medications that if a youth in care is being prescribed those meds um, or those combinations of meds that um, that is overseen by a psychiatrist that has a contract with the state to really ensure that our, our youth in care are not being overly prescribed meds. Um, because as you probably are aware, the rate of, um, of kids that are on psychotropic meds in foster care is pretty high. Yeah, and I had a couple kids, uh, former foster youth on on this podcast that were like listing off, you know, six six meds at a given time. And I saw this on my caseload as well, where the kids weren't bought in, they didn't know what they were taking, so they, they also tried to not take it. And then that would cause issues either behaviorally or um, just like withdrawal. Um, so, uh -huh. so I do, I just remember like, when the kid I was talking to said it would have been nice to know what the drug was for, it would have been nice uh -huh. to, you know, been asked, like, is this what you think you need for your anxiety? Is this what just any conversation? But they're they just don't remember cool. any conversation. Um, it was this is cool. what you're taking. Um, so 
I was thinking like it, it seemed attainable to have a conversation with a kid. It seemed attainable to, you know, give them voice in some of these areas where even if the choices aren't great or very different, right. there's some choice. Right. Right. I, you know, that's not, that was not my experience as a social worker in the field. When I had kids um, who were prescribed psychotropic meds, they always had med checks face-to-face -face with the prescribing prescribing physician. And as their social worker, I would sit in on those and listen. And I remember a lot of conversations between the doc and the kiddo around their experience. So, you know, we're very fortunate in Vermont. We live in a very small state, you know, so in comparison, I think the work may be a little bit more manageable here than in other places. So I, I feel like they're is the day-to-day -day of your job that really needs to just make sure you're up to date, that you're doing the best practices, that you're staying progressive and, you know, taking care of current needs. But is there part of your job where things come up, you know, a child death or there's enough noise around something where you really need to look at or fight for new policy and what does that look like in, like, who's the team that drafts that? Who approves it? Um, we have an exceptionally talented policy writer. And so in the child safety realm, when there's a new policy that's needed, myself and our policy writer sit down and have a meeting and um, sort of talk about who are, the, who are the people who need to be at the table in the development of that policy. And so we always try to get some current workers in the field, a supervisor or two, and then any community partners who may have a stake in that policy. Um, and then there's a whole long process of, of writing it, developing it, bringing it to the field to get feedback, and then incorporating the field feedback, and then eventually bringing it to management team. And so management team are the folks who um, have the final say. So how does thoughts around implementation, because I feel like all the time things sound like a good idea, and then workers are like, cool, like all this means to me is I, it's going to be impossible to do my job because there's one more thing. So does logistics and implementation go into just the building when you're building the policy? What's manageable? Yes, yes. We definitely try to, you know, because I come from the field, I spent a lot of years in the field, I'm very acutely aware of how it's one more thing that we're adding to the plate. And so what we really try to strive for is ensuring that the policy is actually going to make the work easier. You know, we really, we try to embrace a safety culture lens in Vermont. And so what that means is that we don't develop policy just for the sake of creating policy. It's not like a CYA business, you know, where you just create more and more rules to, you know, protect the division from liability. It's really about ensuring that no one individual worker is out there making um, high consequence, high risk decisions on their own in the field. Um, that's, that was the, that was the, the field that I sort of grew up in in this agency as I was out there on my own making decisions. I remember when I was being trained asking somebody once, well, how do you know if a child needs to be removed? And her answer was, well, when you do this long enough, you just know. And that was terrifying. That was terrifying. I was like, what do you mean? Like, I need more than that. Um, so that's not the world that we work in anymore. Um, and, and part of the way we got there is with more policy. And so 
yes, sometimes there are more boxes to check and there are more more heads that have to come to the table and making some of those decisions. Um, and that does take more time, but I think it's a safer world, both for the kids and for the workers. Yeah, when I was talking to uh, Kanisha on this podcast, she was in, she was a former foster youth who had written a book on, on being in foster care, but she also became a social worker herself. And she was saying that some policies in Florida, like when you go check on a kid, you actually have to take a picture of the child that like sends a GPS location back to, so there's proof that you're actually checking in. One of the issues in her case was like, she rarely saw her social worker. Um, so I was interested in, you know, what it takes to get something like that implemented, because it sounds like a great idea. It also sounds horribly expensive. Um, and I know that the Department cool. of Children and Families is always fighting for budget, um, in most states. So how much does budget impact policies that should be written? Uh, you know, have you felt like you've been your policies have been impaired by budget and this policy you would love to push through but you're not able to because of budget not so much the policy side but absolutely the the technical side um and just the workload side i mean i think we could do a lot of really great things with smaller caseloads um i think every child protection worker in the country would say that you know, maybe I'm naive with rose-colored glasses, but I don't see budget in um, impairing policy as much as I see it impairing workload um, constrictions and the technical aspect. Like, I think every worker in the field should have a tablet, but they already have a, la a lap laptop and a cell phone. And currently, we can't afford tablets also, although I think it would make things a lot easier for everybody. Okay, so how well does policy work? Like, I remember certain policies that were just like that's written but we never do that and that it was probably more of a liability thing like i remember we had to carry personal like business coverage on our cars on our personal vehicles but they were like we also know that we're not paying you enough to do that so we will all just pretend that you're carrying business coverage on your car to transport kids so that was one of those unspoken, like the policy was there, but nobody does it. So how often do you think that happens? I think as Vermont has embraced the safety culture lens more and more, that's happening less and less. That used to be acceptable um, culturally within our division. At least it was from my perspective when I started out as a worker. Um, but some of those things are just not, they're not, acceptable anymore it's no longer embraced as a normal okay. thing so it's sort of spotlighted as a problem so for example when i first started um, the idea of getting all of all of your cases closed within 60 days all of the child abuse investigations or assessments you know by policy and statute we were supposed to get them closed by 60 days but that never happened um, in large part due to workload issues and that was acceptable or that was sort of the cultural norm. Um, and since that time, um, we have been able to decrease our workload because we've, um, the legislature has been pretty good to us here um, in some part due to some tragedies that occurred, but we have um, gotten some, a fair amount of new positions over the last decade. And so that whole idea of it being okay to have cases 
open past 60 days, it, it still happens, but it's no longer seen as this okay thing. It's like, nope, that's, that's not okay. They have to be closed. It's not fair to the families um, for them to sit with cases open um, longer than they need to be. So how much of that comes from good policy or good people? Like, so you have the policy, but then you need to have somebody enforcing it. You need to have the accountability of your people. There needs to be a culture like you talked about where things are okay or they're not okay. How, what does like your division do to hire the right people or to how much does the training process add to the policies? Cause they're only as good as the people that are going to enforce them. Right. Right. You know, it's such a people, such a person driven profession. You know, there's nothing about social work that's cookie cutter, as you know. And so, you know, what might work for one worker in terms of supporting them and their documentation and case closure isn't going to work for the next worker. And so a good management find out what or what they need to be able to do the work, including documentation. And I'm being open to hearing that. Um, in terms of hiring, um, one of the pieces that we have in place now that we didn't have, for example, back when I started is um, we have a video about the work right on our website. And so if somebody's thinking about whether or not they want to work in child protection, we really ask that. I think it might actually, you might actually have to watch the video to skip ahead to fill out the application um, because we really do want people to know what they're getting into because child protection work is not for everybody. Um, and so that's, that's part of our screening process now is just ensuring that the folks who are applying really understand what it is that child protection social workers do. Um, you know, it's a, it's a high impact job. So when something goes wrong, uh, these uh, tragedies that influence policy, is there a division that looks into, is there a specific division that in, looks into, you know, what happened in this situation that influences the policy? What is that division, or is that just supervisors of the caseworkers? What's dedicated to that? So um, there's usually, and this is what happens in Vermont, there's an internal review called a critical incident review. Um, and then there is typically some sort of external review um, so that the division is reviewing their own work and making recommendations or developing um, responses. Um, and then there's an external body. Um, one of the shifts that we're working on making in Vermont, and it's actually part of a collaborative, Vermont is part of a collaborative that's um, working nationwide to really bring a safety culture lens to that process as well, so that it's not like a blame game. It's not going in there to review the situation to figure out what the social worker did wrong, right? Because that's... Um, it's too easy. Like, it's, it, we don't have to change anything if we can just pinpoint one person. Right. And, and it's really not, it doesn't make anybody safer in the future. And it's usually a pretty inadequate way of explaining what happened. Um, so, you know, you look at proximity. So if, if you do a review of the case and there are certain aspects of policy that weren't followed or certain decision points where a decision was made that you know, if you if you were to survey the field that let's say 50% of the workforce would have made a different decision. Um, how, how close is that lack of policy following or how close is that decision to the outcome outcome. Sometimes it's it's relatively close. And sometimes it's it's not very close at all. Sometimes you know you're talking about a decision that was made 
a year before the incident. Um, and then a lot of other things happened also. Um, and even, even those decision points that are made in close proximity to the incident still doesn't equal causation. So any review process should really focus on the whole picture, not on placing blame and on, you know, identifying places in the system where the system can improve um, to do two things. One is to create more safety for children in our society, but also to ensure that child protection workers have all the tools that they need at their disposal to do the work um, that we ask them to do. I, you know, I'll say it hasn't always been that way. And it's, it's, um, that's a pretty big shift. Um, but I, there's a movement um, that I'm really excited about underway in our, in our country that a lot of states are um, working on making that shift. That, that is exciting. Uh, did you watch the um, trials of Gabriel Fernandez on Netflix? You know, I started to and, and um, I had to stop. Um, I'm, I'm exposed to a lot in my work and sometimes I have to make some choices about how I what I'm exposed to and off hours. I totally get it. I, I, um, I heard that from a lot of people that they weren't able to watch it, but it was kind of an unprecedented case where, where charges were, were put on four different social workers, which they had never done that before. Um, so I thought it was interesting. They did talk about the way that it's set up in that County. There, there seems to be a lot of, uh, protecting the way the government works around child protective services. So um, I, it seemed to me, although yes, there were definitely uh, shortcomings of the system, uh, it seemed to me a lot like that situation that you're talking about where it would be easier to blame individuals rather than the system at large. But it was nice, they were able to, you know, put a man that was the supervisor of that situation who, who had never had so much as a speeding ticket um, and how he's like, I'm facing you know, prison time in my 60s because of this. So I, th I do think that they did a good um, job of kind of showing all the different perspectives. But it, it's interesting when you talk about um, a movement in this country where it's going we're getting closer to looking at the whole picture. I think that that sounds like it's needed in the right direction. So I'm really excited to hear about this safety culture and to hear that you feel like we're going in the right direction. Uh, I ask everybody that comes on the podcast this, but we do have a foster care crisis. I know that it's heavily informed, you know, it's heavily influenced by the opioid crisis and the numbers of children in foster care do seem to just keep rising. So what do you think, what's, what's the answer? <laughs> How do we end the foster care crisis? I think, I think there are a couple of answers. Um, the first thing I would love to see is I would love to see media um, um, join the team. You know, because media, the way media responds to a fatality or, or a tragedy um, in terms of like the, you know, the, the witch hunt of, you know, which, which DCF officials head is going to roll, right? Like, and it's like all across the headlines and 
I've seen it happen here in Vermont. And it's it's heartbreaking, really, because the social workers doing this work don't enter into this profession for the money or the glory or anything like that. They enter this profession because they're, it's, it's their passion and, and they really just want to help. And when a tragedy strikes, I mean, the consequences ripple throughout. We don't need media to um, sensationalize it. It's, it's already felt pretty deeply. And I think that the way that media portrays um, child protection in the news when there's a tragedy um, creates some fear-based decision-making on the part of social workers. Where, And this is all theory. Um, this is just my personal suspicion um, or hunch. I, I don't have any facts to base it on, but I do worry about it that um, the more liability-driven we are, the more we may seek removal when if we were more comfortable sitting with risk, then we could spend more time with family engagement. And then, of course, the other piece we need to be able to do that is, is of course, lower caseloads. You know, social workers need, you know, not only the skills and the training, but they need the time. Um, family engagement is not something that happens in one hour long home visit. You know, family engagement is something that takes a lot of a lot of time and a lot of effort because, you know, let's face it, families don't trust us. Um, they're scared to death when we knock on their door and um, rightfully so, you know, I totally get it. You know, the government knocking on your door saying, hey, I'm gonna judge your parenting for a little while. Can I come in? Mm -hmm. So lower caseload and we need the media as our partners in keeping children in the community safe and sensationalizing, um, sensationalized headlines don't do that. So. Is there room for, with current caseloads, is there room for caseworkers to take on more risk if they feel like, you know what, I'm, I, I'm going to leave this kid with their parents, but I'd like to check in more often. Mm -hmm. And does that just come from a social worker choosing to do that? They certainly don't have to do that. Right. So we use, um, I talked about the the tools, the assessment tools that we use. So um, we use a safety assessment tool and, and um, to, like I said, to sort of take it out of the realm of the subject of the social worker. So if there's an identified danger as defined by this assessment tool, um, then we either have to safety plan with the family and that's what our practice dis dictates that we always try to do first and foremost is safety plan with the family. If we're not able to safety plan, then um, we may have to seek court intervention. But um, so to answer your question, yes, there's definitely room for a social worker to safety plan and some safety plans require more time, more check backs, you know, and some safety plans require a lot of players, right? Not just not just mom and dad in the home, but an aunt or an uncle or a grandparent or a, a treatment provider, probation officer, like it's often a whole team. Um, and those plans can take a lot of time to manage. Does the time that those take to manage ever, it's just not worth the time or we can't get the right players at the table. And so we, you know, would rather err on the side of caution and not do all the safety planning because we just don't have the resources for it. I would like to think no. I would like to believe that if there's a way to keep a child with their parents, um, that that's 
that's what workers will do. I mean, I talk about the time it takes to safety plan, but you know, going to court and and, get, and going down that track takes a lot more time. Sure. And sure. it's and it's traumatic for everybody. Yeah. So I've a few of the answers of people on this podcast of how do we help kids not come into care. A lot of the answers have been how do we support parents before their kids come into care. Mm-hmm. So does do these safety plans i'm sure that they entail you know drug counseling or whatever if there's an obvious you know mental health economic burden do do the safety plans all address those issues yes yeah okay. i mean so there's 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 services that get put into place and then there are concrete um actions that people in the child's life can take to ensure the child is safe. And so we we try really hard to not conflate the two because a parent getting into substance abuse treatment doesn't equal safety for the child. But what does equal safety for the child perhaps is that mom's best friend who lives one block over, you know, agrees to come by the house every night at nine because that's mom's like weakest time, you know, or something like that. Like those and so we try to do both while we're waiting for the services to get rolling, um, pulling in those concrete supports. And it's really about networks. And I think if there's, you know, one thing that I would say that could could really um, decrease the number of children coming into care is if our communities took on more responsibility for for children. So family members, extended family members, teachers, service providers, probation officers, you know, it's, it's that um, idea that the, the government's going to take care of it, that's problematic. And so the more we can move away from that and see the government social worker as somebody who's just there to pull people together, but it's actually the family's network who are going to do the, the hard work of, of ensuring the child is safe, which means, you know, stopping by the house because I'm, I'm guessing most families would prefer that their friends and families are stopping by rather than the government social worker. Sure. Yeah, I, I did hear, um, and this might be in different uh, areas than Vermont, but I've heard that kids go into care often due to economic issues like you know, there's no heat in the house or, you know, a roof really needs repairing and it's leaking and it's leaking in the kid's room and it's cold or whatever, Um, which seems like, uh, seems like a really sad reason to remove a child from somebody's care. Uh Uh, I know that Vermont's probably pretty good with assistance for stuff like that, but do you, have you um, encountered situations where it was just an economic reason why like neglect was substantiated i have not and that's you know it's i've been part of a lot of conversations recently both statewide and nationally around this um this exact topic and i think we are we may be a little bit different here in vermont so part of um part of it is structurally so the department for children and families is the umbrella government agency that houses both family services and economic services. Mm -hmm. And so we can talk to each other. Um, And so if there's a family that, if there's an economic reason why a child might come into care, 
it's um, it's only one phone call away to talk to economic services to see, you know, to work together to figure out what we can do to support that family. There are federal dollars called family preservation funds. And in Vermont, um, those dollars are spent on the local level. And so each district has discretion over how to use those dollars. And a lot of, in every district, there's a pot that's sort of kept aside for those for those one-time expenditures. You know, if a family's evicted on a Friday afternoon in the wintertime, you know, we need to get them into a hotel for the weekend until we can start working with economic services to get them into um, subsidized housing or something like that. And, you know, again, I may have some rose-colored glasses on, but I can say emphatically in my career, I've never taken kids into custody for economic reasons. So you just brought, brought up different divisions. And I know that so many states, like when I was in Georgia, like what one county did versus what another county did, it was like, could be completely different or even the funds they had access to and all of that. So when you are working with policy, is it statewide? Is it understood that it's statewide policy? Do different divisions have different policy? No, so our policies are statewide. Okay. Well, that helps, especially since, you know, many children end up in a different county, or at least I know in Georgia, you might have a kid that their home of origin was in one county and their foster homes two counties away and, and how they dealt with things, they dealt with things differently. And it's, it was really an obstacle to try to navigate that system because social workers couldn't even really speak to what would be available to the child in another county. Oh. Um, so, so I I like the statewide um, I like the statewide plan. Although I know Vermont would be one that's statewide. They're very small. Um, right. Right. Well, this has been really helpful for me because I. I don't know that I've ever um, understood what triggers policy within the Department of Ch Children and Families and how it is implemented. And it sounds like you guys really do a great job at getting a team together, understanding if it will work, and making sure that you put the child's safety first and not liability, which is interesting because I could see how liability would be the knee-jerk reaction for policy in a lot of these cases. Well, we have to be—we always have to be very mindful that um, that we don't ride that pendulum swing too much. Absolutely. Do you think that there are any families that, after the fact, felt like um, the system was helpful and came in and? you know, held their family in the gap and helped them get resources and now they are reunified and don't feel like it was a horrible experience? Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually. Um, you know, we all have these moments along our careers that sort of keep us in the profession, right? So um, I had a mom approach me once who um, I had removed her kids after attempting to work with her over a series of months. And she was struggling with addiction um, really badly. And um, I saw her, you know, maybe three years, four years later on the street at a parade and she approached me and she had had some pretty awful things to say um, when it was all happening. 
thing. But when she approached me on the street those years later, um, she asked if she could hug me. She apologized for the things that she said and said, frankly, I needed a kick in the ass and you gave it to me. And having my kids removed was the worst thing that could ever happen to me. And it was the best thing that ever happened because it made me get sober. So it's those moments that um, I guess keep us coming back and working. <laughs> Absolutely. And like you want to think of the system as this, the, not this thing that removes kids and, and is seen as bad, but really is there to support families uh, and care and, and wrap around and find those networks that they may not have and give them the resources so that they can get better and break the cycle. So I love hearing that story. Thanks. Okay, well, this has been awesome. I think that our listeners will really like uh, understanding kind of the policy side of things because there's a lot of inner workings. And I think that uh, if they've had run-ins at all, it's been with direct direct care service workers um, and not with people um, behind the scenes. And I think it's also nice to know for states that might be less progressive that there are more progressive states that actually are talking on the national level to other states. So, cause I didn't realize that either, that states were kind of, Hey, what are you doing? What's working for you? What's your system? What's the ones, is there one state that you're like, Ooh, they set the model. Mm, I, no, I don't think I could say, cause I don't think I know any state's overall system well enough. I, I see little pieces here and there that um, are intriguing, but I don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to guess about the whole system. And do you feel like if you see the little pieces and you're like, wow, this is a really cool program they've launched over here. We should try that. Do you feel like um, there's a good amount of space for, for innovation? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We, we have a saying um, anytime I go to like a national conference where we, we encourage stealing shamelessly from each other you know there's no reason to reinvent the wheel and if something is working in another state then you know there's there's no like proprietary thing like no you can't you can't have this it's like no have it it's working well and within your like with your supervisors do you feel like they're very receptive to those new ideas um well i think you talked about implementation earlier on i think implementation in any like fast-paced um, profession where the workload is huge, implementation can be a little tough strictly because people just don't have the time to learn, to necessarily sit down and learn a new thing. And so it's a, it's um, about a process of like finding out who your early adapters are, right? Who are the people who are, you know, going to be excited to learn about it and then champion it and then tell their peers about it. And that's how implementation, um, can be done successfully. It's not about trying to get, you know, blanket um, acceptance right from the gate, you know. Sure. Well, that's exciting. I know Vermont is a unique state and I don't know, this was just like a really nice positive interview where I just feel like even my opinion or thoughts of people working within it felt like it was like, you know, pushing this huge boulder up a hill. Like, that it was like, oh, there's so much red tape and it's just this big convoluted system. But that's not really what we learned from you, you know, that you feel inspired. You feel like you can do your job. Yeah, sure. It's tough work and um, you have to 
deal with all the interpersonal dynamics of not only clients, but workers, and it's a people-centered field. But I don't know. I, I feel like there's, there's uh, hope in, in this interview. Oh, I think I just got chills. That's nice. <laughs> I'm glad. Well, I hope other people do too. Yeah. I, I really think that um, I, I never wanted people to feel blaming of social workers, but then I always thought that came from this position of like, they're in such a hard position. They're backed up against a wall. Um, and now I'm feeling like it's not that at all. Like everybody's trying to help and this whole thing's a little murky and we're all trying to navigate it the best way we can. Right. Right. Yeah. And I don't want to, you know, I don't want to leave the interview, um, giving the impression that there aren't social workers who feel that they're backed up against the wall because I'm, I'm sure there are, but I think, you know, maybe it's my approach to management. Um, not that, you know, my approach to my role, I should say is to find out what's causing that and then address it because, um, you know, we, we need people to feel like they have what they need to do the job. Absolutely. In your, in Vermont, is turnover a big issue? It has been. I think we, it ebbs and flows depending on um, the situation. And so, you know, back in 2014, we had um, some, some terrible situations, um, 2014 and 2015. So we saw a lot of turnover after, after those tragedies. Um, we had three children, no, two children die, three children die, and a social worker was murdered. Um, so, yeah, there was a lot of turnover after that. Um, but I, I haven't looked at the stats, but I think it might be leveling out a little bit. And I got to tell you, I, I've so I've been training. Um, part of what I do is train new work and aspects of the work and um and maybe that's what keeps me so hopeful is that i get to interact with um our workforce as they're coming in the door and it's it's really inspiring i feel like we have a lot of really good folks and it's um it's nice to see people entering the profession who also have a lot of hope i love it well thank you so much for taking the time and doing this interview today. I think the listeners will love it and thank you for all the work that you do in making the policies and sticking in the field for as long as you have. And I know that just having all that experience brings incredible value to the field. So thank you. Thank you. All right, well you have a good rest of your week and I'll talk to you soon. Okay, bye. Bye.